Good evening. Shall we start? We're very pleased to have Alex Cohen here. She's taught at uh, York and Leeds previously. She's the author of Kant and the Human Sciences. She's recently been appointed to a Chancellor's Fellowship at the University of Edinburgh starting this year, but she tells me she hasn't quite got there yet, but uh, uh, we'll be there soon. Anyway, she's here now, and this evening she's going to talk about Kant on the ethics of belief. Alex. Thank you, David. Well, thanks for having me, um, and well, thank you for showing up in spite of having Kant in the title. I know it can uh, put some people off, um, but I'll try to uh, be as, as um, non-Kantian friendly as possible. Um, and so when I, when I refer to, to kind of Kantian principles, I'll try to explain um, what I, how I understand them and what I mean by them. Um, anyway, okay, so Kant on the ethics of belief. So according to Kant, uh, we are responsible for and can be blamed for our beliefs. Quote, we can, of course, blame someone who has given approval to a false cognition, namely when the responsibility actually lies with him for rejecting those grounds that could have convinced him of the object of the cognition he has and could have freed him from his error." End of quote. So in line with many contemporary philosophers, Kant seems to treat as obvious the fact that we are epistemically responsible, and yet he denies the possibility of a direct influence of the will on our beliefs. Quote, the will does not have any influence immediately on holding to be true. This would be quite absurd. So although much, if not all, of our beliefs are beyond the realm of direct voluntary control, he allows for in, an indirect form of influence of the will on judgment through the capacity to direct our cognition according to principles. So whether we, we are right or wrong, whether our beliefs are justified or unjustified, we are responsible for them because we have this capacity. Um, so my aim today is not actually to defend this claim. Um, I've defended um, somewhere else. Um, rather, what I'd like to do today is to draw the implications of this picture uh, of, I guess, what could be called doxastic um, involuntarism um, for the possibility of developing a Kantian account of the ethics of belief. Um, and this paper is in many ways quite programmatic. Um, eventually, I hope that by re through the reconstruction of Kant's views, um, a Kantian ethics of belief, uh, I can provide interesting, hopefully interesting answers to certain debates in contemporary epistemology. But that's the kind of down the line um, in hopefully a couple of years. Um, what I'm going to try to do today, in the meantime, is to deploy the tools provided by Kant's ethics um, to see whether a coherent account of epistemic normativity can be gleaned. And so in particular, what I'll attempt to do today is to reconstruct um, a number of epistemic concepts um, and arguments on the model of their ethical counterparts. And so the notions I'll focus on today are things like epistemic autonomy, epistemic principle, epistemic maxim, the notion of epistemically permissible, and um, the infamous epistemic universalizability test. So these are um, the, the grounds I'm hoping to cover uh, today. Um, so first, uh, the principles of thinking. So on the Kantian picture, uh, we are always the agents of our cognition even when it doesn't seem to be the case, since our capacity for rational agency underlies all our cognitive activity. Quote, the power to judge autonomously, that is, freely according to principles of thought in general, is called reason. Uh, so this quote is on your handout, so I, I've put the main quotes and the main claims um, on your handout. 
Thus, contrary to what is often assumed, autonomy is not just the remit of practical reason. Just as we act autonomously if we act on the mor moral principles we give ourselves, we believe autonomously if we believe on the basis of the epistemic principles we give ourselves. So to understand this claim, let's have a quick look at the notion of moral autonomy. According to Kant, all competing ethical theories share a common premise. They define what is morally acceptable on the basis of what agents supposedly want and prescribe what they should do if they wanted to obtain, whether it is happiness, maximum utility, or whatever value um, you defend. So by relying on agents' desire in one form or another, these theories defend what Kant calls heteronomous accounts of moral value. The good is agent-relative, subjective, and contingent. They prescribe that if I want my action to be right, then I should write grounded on X, with X taking the place of whichever value you put forward. By contrast, Kant's moral law is of the form you owe to X, no if, no then. Autonomy as the source of moral value is defined in terms of what all agents can will as universal law. It prescribes for everyone equally and necessarily, irrespective of their desires. So of course this is uh, terribly brief and you know terribly schematic, um, but you know I take it to be kind of an uncontroversial, uh, broad uh, picture of, of um, Kant's notion of moral autonomy. Um, so on my interpretation of Kant's account of cognition, um, the same conception of autonomy applies to the epistemic realm, namely. Um, competing epistemic theories make the same mistake. They assign an unconditional value to a heteronomous conception of truth, whether it is what is supported by evidence, what is useful, what the community believes, or what God tells me. They prescribe that if I want my belief to be true, then I should ground in on X, X taking the place of whichever value, epistemic value in this case, you put forward. By contrast, concept epistemic principles are of the form you owe to X, no, no if, no then, they command all in the same way and in all cases. Quote, thinking according to a commonly ruling maxim is only using your own reason as a supreme touchstone of truth. So uh, on my reading, in the case of epistemic norms as well as moral norms, the only authority that can and ought to be shared by others, and in fact by all others, is the authority of reason. Quote, freedom in thinking signifies the subjection of reason to no laws except those which it gives itself. If reason will not subject itself to the laws it gives itself, it has to bow under the yoke of laws given by another." End of quote. This is from what is orientation in thinking. So from reason's autonomy in thinking, Kant deduces three epistemic principles grouped under the term sensus communis. Quote, and this is again on your handout, one, thinking for oneself, two, thinking in the place of another, and three, always thinking in agreement with oneself. So this is um, a formulation that you find in the lectures on anthropology, um, but Kant keeps repeating them and formulating them in slightly different ways, but they're all roughly um, um, similar. Um, the most famous are in the Critic of Judgment, um, but there's also some in the anthropology, the lectures on logic, etc. Um, so we have these three epistemic principles. Um, they are meant to be, or they play the function of um, the way or the, um, the principles according to which we ought to form our beliefs. They guide our thoughts, or to use the title of one of, one of Kant's essays, with them we orient ourselves in thinking. Thus following them amounts to acknowledging the normative requirements of cognition. On the one hand, 
whatever I believe ought to be guided by the appropriate epistemic principles, and on the other hand, holding a particular belief is only justified if we see epistemic norms as binding. So these are the, the principles, um, the epistemic principles, which are the epistemic <coughs> equivalent of, of, I guess, the moral law, if you draw the analogy um, with ethics. Um, and similarly, once a principle is adopted as part of an agent's epistemic strategy, it becomes what can cause his maxim. In this case, is epistemic maxim. So, quote, a rule that the subject makes his principle is called a maxim. A maxim formulates an agent's actual policy or attention. Most familiar, of course, are, are moral maxims, the maxims that guide our actions. They are, quote, the subjective principles of acting, the principles in accordance with which the subject acts. This is from the groundwork. Less familiar are epistemic maxims. Quote, the universal rules and conditions for avoiding error. So they are the subjective principles of thinking. And um, as Kahn writes in The Critic of Judgment, the issue here is not the faculty of cognition, but the way of thinking needed to make a purposive use of it. Um, so this is the kind of big, um, big picture of how I understand um, epistemic autonomy working um, by analogy with um, the notion of moral autonomy. Um, so now I'm going to get into the, the kind of detail of the picture. Um, so I've tried to uh, be helpful by giving you a table on your handout, what I call table one, moral versus epi epistemic principles. And now I'm going to try to, um, I was going to say unleash, but it's not quite that, <laughs> deploy <laughs> um, uh, the concepts um, on the basis of, of this analogy. Um, so the first point is, and so here again, um, for, for the Kentians <coughs> in the room, um, this is very much a reconstruction. Um, so um, Kant himself doesn't actually say much about this notion of epistemic principles and maxims and so on. And so what I do from now on is basically reconstruct uh, what I take to be the, the, the full-blown account, uh, which is only there sketched, so to speak, in, in, in Kant's actual writings. So let me <coughs> unleash the principles. Uh, the idea is that each of the principles of the census communis is um, the epistemic equivalent of one of the three formulations of the moral law. I mean, of course, there are plenty for various formulations, but um, in the literature, people tend to agree that there's three main formulations of the moral law. Um, it itself has different variants, um, but the three groups are, are the main categories. Um, so you find them on the table. So the principle to think for oneself, the first principle of the census communis, uh, corresponds to the formula of the law of nature. Um, so on your handout, the moral principle being act only in accordance with that maxim through which you can at the same time will that it become a universal law. Um, so why does it correspond to uh, the epistemic principle of think for oneself? Well, because um, they both reject heteronomy and commend that we act or believe on shareable, universalizable principles rather than private subjective principles. So... Um, they are meant to play the same function. They rule out um, the same uh, formal um, maxims or principles. The second, uh, the principle to think oneself in the position of everyone else, which I call the formula of extended thought, uh, corresponds to the formula of humanity. Why? Well, because they both prescribe that I take others into consideration as rational beings, whether morally or epistemically. And third, the principle to 
always think consistently corresponds to the formula of the realm of ends. Why? Well, because they both demand coherence and systematicity in the form as well as the content of our beliefs and actions. So the idea is that through um, each principle of the census communist, we have a, a, a maxim, I guess, it, once it's ad adopted by the agent, that plays the same function, the same logical function, as the formula of, um, of morality, I guess. At least that's the claim. Um, so you may think, well, why is this important? Uh, well, it's important for a number of reasons. Um, first, it supports the claim, which I guess will be the underlying claim of the whole talk, um, that both epistemic and moral principles, or both epistemic and moral norms, are expressions of the same normative power, the power of reason. So it is important that each formula matches onto the other, uh, because otherwise we don't understand why um, the same normativity is on work in both. Um, Thereby, it also eliminates, um, although I won't defend this claim today, um, conscriptic remarks on the unity of practical and speculative reason in a common principle. So um, that's a famous claim that Kant makes in a number of places in the, in the corpus. It's puzzled a lot of commentators. Um, one way of looking at it, at least from the perspective of what I propose today, is that um, from the principle of reason's autonomy <coughs> derive both epistemic and moral normativity. So moral norms in the case of the principles that guide our will, and epistemic norms in the case of the principles that guide our thoughts. Um, quote, there can in the end be only one and the same reason, which must be distinguished merely in its application. Um, so on this picture, reason is the single supreme source of normativity, and um, it finds expressions in the moral realm through the three formulas uh, of morality, and in the epistemic realm through the three principles of the census communists. So if this is correct, and by this I mean um, the claim that we have this analogy between, uh, I mean, I guess I want, I want it to be stronger than analogy. I want to say, you know, we have the same um, power of reason, which grounds normativity, and then we have two types of normativity flowing at its, as its application to different domains, one being belief, the other one being action. So I guess this is this. So if this is correct, it should follow uh, that the rational procedures that apply to the moral domain ought to apply equally to the cognitive domain. Otherwise, uh, we need to question the idea that the same normative power is at work. So the aim of the following section is to explore whether the rational procedure that is in many way that in many way defines concetics, namely the universalizability test, is also applicable to the domain of epistemic deliberation. So second section, the universalizability test of epistemic maxims. So famously for Kant, maxims of action are only morally permissible if they pass what he calls a universalizability test. Its function is to rule out any maxim that cannot become a universal law. Uh, in the following passage from What is Orientation in Thinking, Kant suggests, albeit rather elusively, that epistemic maxims should also pass a universalizability test. Quote, uh, and I think this is on your handout. To make use of one's own reason means no more than to ask oneself, whenever one is supposed to assume something, whether one can find it feasible to make the ground or the rule on which one assumes it into a universal principle for the use of reason. This test is one that everyone can apply to himself." End of quote. Um, so this is as close as Kant gets to a formulation of an epistemic universalizability test. Um, and so this is where the proper reconstruction um, begins. 
what I'll try to show is that um, we can reconstruct um, an epistemic universalizability test on the model of the formula of universal law in, in the ethics. So what is this formula of universal law? Um, well, one of its formulations in the groundwork is, quote, I ought never to act except in such a way that I could also will that my maxim should become a universal law. So this is a procedure that establishes uh, whether my maxim, and by maxim, remember, I mean the subjective principle of action, principle the subject has actually adopted. So whether my maxim is legitimate <laughs> by determining whether it can be willed as a universal law without generating contradictions. Um, so there's a lot of literature, of course, on the, you know, this test and, and a lot of debates around whether it works, whether there are exceptions, different types of contradictions and so on. Um, and again here, I won't get into the details uh, because of course, what I want to do is just apply this model to, to um, epistemic maxims. So uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, I'll just briefly sum up what I take to be the main um, function of the test. Um, so how does it work? Well, it works in two <coughs> steps. Uh, first, I test whether the universalization of my maxim leads to what can cause a contradiction in conception. And again, this is all in your handout if you need um, um, rough guidelines. So what is a contradiction in conception? When it's, um, again, very roughly, I ask myself, can I conceive of a world governed by um, my maxim as a law of nature? Um, the, the best known example is that of breaking promises. Um, the idea is that I can't universalize the maxim um, of breaking my promises. Well, because if, if I did universalize it, it would lead to the destruction of the very practice of promise making because you know, um, if everyone did it, then we would stop believing in promises. Of course, again, here the details are controversial, but um, um, they all agree that you know, once universalized, it destroys the practice and thus um, it makes it impossible for me to act on it. Therefore, I have the duty to refrain from acting on this maxim. I ought never to break my promises. That's the contradiction in conception. Then we have um, the second part of the, of the test, which is the test of contradiction in the will. So the question then is, can I rationally will to act on this maxim in a world governed by it as a law of nature? The emphasis here being on willing. Um, and uh, here the typical example is the maxim to refuse to help others in need. Um, how does it go? Well, if this maxim were universalized, um, I would not then get help um, if I need it, which I can't possibly will, therefore um, it's not universalizable, um, and therefore I have the duty to act on the opposite maxim, I ought to help others. Um, again here, you know, I know in the literature there's um, critical discussion of whether it actually works, whether the argument goes through. Um, again, this is, this is not really um, something I'm interested in. What's important is the, the way that um, the way the test works. Um, so if my maxim passes both tests without generating any contradiction, um, it is morally permissible. And what does it mean to be permissible? Well, it means it's morally neutral. I can act on this maxim um, because it doesn't violate any rational norm, um, but I do not have any positive duty to act on it. It's just uh, up to me. It's um, the realm of discretionary ends and it's part of pursuing my own um, private project. Okay, so uh, to sum up, um, what I take to be the function of the universalizability test um, is that it stipulates first what is morally wrong, second what is morally obligatory, and third what is morally permissible. 
Now let's apply this model to the epistemic realm. Um, so first we need an epistemic version of um, the formula of universal law. So let's try something like this. I ought never to believe except in such a way that my maxim should become a universal law. So we trade um, the willing for the, the belief. Um, so what could it mean for an epistemic maxim to be able to become a universal law? Well, to make sense of it, let's begin by examining um, what it means for it not to be able to, be, to become a universal law, because it's always easier to do the, the negative first. Um, so what does it exclude? Well, first it excludes any maxim that bases beliefs on subjective grounds. Um, since they are not shareable by all others in principle, being subjective, they cannot be universalized. Um, Kant calls this class of impermissible maxims prejudice. Quote, prejudice is a maxim of judging objectively from subjective grounds. Um, so on the Kantian picture, a prejudice is not actually a false belief. Uh, it's not a, it has nothing to do with the content. It has to do um, with a maxim. It's, it's a maxim that's based on illegitimate grounds because subjective grounds. Uh, typical examples of impermissible maxims of this kind are maxims of wishful thinking. Quote, frequently we take something to be certain merely because it pleases us, and we take something to be uncertain merely because it displeases or annoys us. This certainty or uncertainty is not objective, however, but instead subjective. So this is um, pretty straightforward, but I think it's interesting to start um, from um, the case of prejudice. Um, more generally, um, what it shows is that any maxim based on what can cause the subjective private conditions of judgment will not pass the universalizability test because by definition, they are not shareable by others. And so this includes, um, I mean, the, the obvious um, things, my desires, my idiosyncratic tendencies, my temperament, personal preference, history, and so on. Um, it also includes um, my priest's views, my king's views, and so on. Um, irrespective of the grounds of their authority over me. Um, the only legitimate grounds are, quote, objective grounds of truth, which are independent of the nature and interest of the subject. Um, okay, so that's for the negative, what is um, <coughs> obviously ruled out by the universalizability test. Um, and so conversely, um, what I can adopt is any belief whose maxim is shareable by others and whose grounds are sufficiently objective. <coughs> Quote, when we know, namely, that we are free of all subjective grounds, and yet the holding to be true is sufficient, then we are convinced, and in fact logically convinced, or convinced on objective grounds, the object is certain. This is from the lectures on logic. Um, so this seems straightforward enough, um, although um, <coughs> you could think of um, obvious exceptions straight away on the basis of, of Kant's account. Um, so what I have in mind is, is the beliefs that are clearly objectively insufficient and yet epistemically legitimate. Um, so think, for instance, of the postulates of practical reason, what is better known as Kant's account of moral faith. Um, so famously, we can never know whether God exists, uh, the soul is immortal, etc. Their existence is neither susceptible of empirical support nor demonstrable on a priori grounds. Um, belief in them clearly does not have any objective grounds, and yet, on Kant's account, they are uh, epistemically permissible. 
So does it mean that um, the test is kind of skewed from the start and it delivers inconsistent results? Uh, because it does seem to entail that um, there are different grounds for different beliefs, each with their own standards, and these standards seem to be incompatible, um, which would mean that this, the test can't even get started. Um, it doesn't meet Kant's basic requirement for an account of normativity, um, namely universality. Um, however, crucially for Kant, uh, thinking is broader than believing, and knowledge does not exhaust the domain of the epistemically permissible. Um, so for Kant, there are three modes of what he calls um, holding a proposition to be true, which would be the Kantian equivalent of the modern um, broad notion of belief or, or assent. Um, there's knowledge, which is both subjectively and objectively sufficient, opinion, which is subjectively as well as objectively insufficient, and faith, um, Glauben, which is only subjectively sufficient and objectively insufficient. So the idea is that these modes of holding to be true set the norms of belief, so that, for instance, we only know if the proposition we entertain has both subjective and objective grounds. Otherwise, the belief we hold does not count as knowledge, but mere opinion and faith. And whilst this permissible to hold opinions, it is only, of course, qua opinions, as long as we acknowledge their lack of sufficient grounds. So this means that depending on, our, on the grounds of, our, of my belief, it will have a different mode of what holding to be true. Um, therefore, Kant's account does not entail that there are different epistemic modes, each with their own standard. Um, although there are different types of grounds for different kinds of belief, they all obey the same rational norm. They are all universalizable. So the function of the universalizability test is precisely to provide a universal formal procedure that applies to all beliefs equally and uniformly. Um, so the maxims that do pass the universalizability test are the maxims that can be adopted by all, at least in principle, if not in practice. They are, quote, valid for the reason of every human being to take it to be true, regardless of the difference amongst the subjects. Okay, so this is all very abstract and um, so what I'll do now is turn to an example, so hopefully um, the account makes more sense. Um, so let's take um, the case of, um, it, well, I guess I can, <laughs> evidentialism, that's why I'll call it eventually, so let's just call it that. So say I'm in the process of determining whether I should believe that P. As I do so, I encounter a piece of evidence that falsifies it. Um, if I choose to ignore this evidence and believe P anyway because, say, it suits my desires, or uh, think of the example of wishful thinking I was discussing earlier, um, in this particular case, I am thinking another maxim uh, on your handout, non-EM, I can ignore evidence in cases when it falsifies a belief I desire to be true. So how, d how, how does it work? Well, insofar as this maxim refers to my inclinations, um, which as subjective differ depending on the agent who adopts it, it is, of course, not universalizable. Why? Well, first, because it's not a policy that everyone can follow. Um, in fact, no maxim that involves holding something to be true on subjective grounds, whether it's desires, inclination, etc., rather than objective grounds, that is, evidence, proof, etc., is universalizable for this reason. Second, even if everyone could follow this maxim, 
its universalization would have catastrophic results for my attempts to acquire beliefs. For I'm cognitively dependent, I need epistemic cooperation and scientific division of labor. Yet if this maxim, non-EM, um, was universalized, I could not rely on others' cognitive help, which I can't possibly will. Therefore, the maxim non-EM leads to a contradiction in the will. Um, recall, what does it mean? Well, it means that I can't consistently will it to be a universal law. And so if this is correct, then I have a duty to refrain from acting on it. And so we get non-non-EM. I ought not ignore evidence in cases when it falsifies a belief I desire to be true. Um, and so if we have non-non-EM, leads to EM, um, so some kind of evidentialist maxim that we have a duty to adopt. Um, but how are we to understand the corresponding positive duty to take evidence into account in our belief formation? So now let's try to formulate a positive uh, evidentialist maxim. Um, let's begin with something that puts evidence at the center of our beliefs so that we are never allowed to ignore it. So that would be EM1 on your handout. I ought to ground my beliefs on the evidence that supports them. So does it pass the universalizability test? Well, it doesn't, because its universalization would rule out beliefs that are not based on evidence and that we nevertheless want to hold. Think, for instance, of a priori propositions, such as the proposition of mathematics or geometry, for instance. Since I cannot possibly will to give up a priori non-evidential propositions as part of my belief system, I can't will that EM1 be universalized. <coughs> so if that's correct, then its universalization generates a contradiction in the will, and I have a duty to act on the opposite maxim, namely EM2 on your handout. So I ought to ground some of my beliefs on the evidence that supports them. So does this work? Well. Here we seem to have <coughs> the opposite problem. Um, this maxim is obviously permissible, but it doesn't say much, in particular about the epistemic situations in which it should apply and the ones in which it shouldn't. So it's basically a useless maxim, and we need to reformulate it so that it contains some kind of epistemic rule um, and a context so that I know where um, and when, rather, to apply it. So let's try EM3. I ought to ground my a posteriori beliefs on the evidence that supports them. So does it work? Well, first, um, it works because it does not seem to generate a contradiction in the will, um, by contrast with EM1. Um, it doesn't rule out other forms of non-evidential non beliefs I want to hold on to. Um, so that passes the first test. Um, does it pass the second um, step of the test? Well, it doesn't seem to generate a contradiction in conception either, uh, because I can conceive of a world governed by it <coughs> as a law of nature. In fact, it seems that such a world would, would be quite a good epistemic world. Um, so it passes both steps, so it is permissible for me to adopt it as my maxim. Um, but of course, this is not enough, because I don't want to have a merely permissible maxim. Um, what I want is to have a note. What I want is for it to be a duty, an epistemic duty. Um, so how can I get it to um, grant an epistemic duty? Um, well, for it to be obligatory, to have this, this ought, I need to show that all exceptions to it are impermissible. 
can I show that? Well, that's precisely actually where, where we started with non-EM. Um, what I showed, what um, or I tried to show in non-EM um, is precisely that there can't be any exceptions based on subjective conditions of judgment. Um, no exception is universalizable. No exception to EM3 is universalizable. So we have a duty to act on EM3. Um, so of course, I mean, this is quite rough, and, um, but the idea is just to show you how passing through the test gives us the kind of um, results we want. Um, or at least um, it seems that the results we get from putting our maxims um, through the test um, are compatible with uh, what we know, you know, as Kant's mo most familiar epistemic positions. Um, so of course now you may be tempted to say, well, it's all very well, but it doesn't, it's fine to say um, these positions, um, sorry, the maxim that passes all the tests is the kind of maxim we would want if we were already a Kantian. Um, so it seems that it's not producing any argument or it's not producing any, um, any grounds for believing or adopting these maxims. Um, and so this would seem to be a problem because it seems that we're presupposing what we want to um, prove, and so we enter some kind of um, pointless circle. Um, so is this a problem? Well, I don't think it is a problem because this would be misunderstanding um, the function of the um, epistemic universalizability test. Um, why? Well, because it's, the test is not meant to deliver an account of what truth is. Um, it's not even meant to deliver an account of what we ought to believe or how we ought to believe it. Um, it's intended, um, perhaps I should say it's merely intended, to rule out the maxims that are not shareable in principle, in virtue of their form. Um, and so here, again, for those of you who are familiar with um, Conseil ethics, um, you may think of, um, in the literature, what, what is it? I mean, there are, of course, a lot of debates around um, how to interpret um, the function of the universalizability test. Um, as applied to moral maxims. Some people think that it ought to generate duties. Uh, others think it's merely a test that rule, a negative test that rule out, rules out either mere impermissible maxims or deals with cases of exceptions. Uh, can we make an exception to this particular test? No, we can count, therefore, blah. Um, so of course, this is, this is um, controversial. Um, but my take, I mean, I, I don't mean to commit myself to in the epistemic, in the ethical case, but in the epistemic case, um, I really do think that um, um, the function of the test is really merely, uh, although I don't think it's it's um, negligible, um, but it's merely to rule out the maxim that are not shareable in principle. Um, so what this means is that it leaves plenty of room for permissible differences of opinions, um, arguments. Uh, disagreements, epistemic disagreement. Um, its function is not to rule those out so that in an ideal epistemic world we would all agree on everything. Um, how is this possible? Well, because um, what counts as an objective ground, what constitutes sufficient evidence, or how probable is a particular hypothesis, all these are a matter of the exercise of judgment. Uh, Kant says in the lectures on logic, a practice faculty of judgment. Um, and again, for those who know the ethics, um, it's like moral judgment. It's, it's a capacity that we have to exercise, that we have to practice. Um, it's not perfect, 
Apparently, the older we get, the better we get at it, um, in both moral and, and the epistemic case. Um, the point is that um, it leaves room for, for differences of opinion and even disagreements. All these things are permissible as long as uh, your maxim passes uh, the first step, the first epistemic test, which is this uh, universalizability test I've tried uh, to describe. So the thought is that just as there is no moral algorithm um, for Kant, at least on, on my account, uh, there is no epistemic algorithm either. Um, there's no such thing as, as a machine that can produce justify beliefs. Um, so of course, um, what I've done today is, is far from sufficient to um, determine whether the universalizability test rules out the right kind of maxims uh, beyond the case I've discussed very briefly today. Um, so I'm sure um, you will come up with lots of exceptions and problem cases and so on, um, and I welcome them. Um, what I've tried to do is just kind of give you a, a rough sketch of how, how I take it to work. Um, so instead, what I'll do now is turn to an objection. Um, so if the account of, of epistemic principles I have, I have sketched um, is modeled on consethics, it also seems to be vulnerable to the same kind of objections, of course. Um, so one of them is um, that by defining cognition as a process guided by principles, it ends up proving too much. Uh, it entails that, um, or it seems to entail, that we only believe in an epistemically responsible way if and only if we are actually aware of the epistemic principles that govern the acquisition of our beliefs. And yet, in many, if not most cases, we do not in fact attend to the norms that guide our cognitive endeavors, and thus we fail to demonstrate any such reflective awareness. This would suggest that most of our beliefs are in fact irresponsibly held. Um, so, is this the case? Well, of course not. So, um, again, the analogy with moral deliberation can be useful. So according to Kant, we do not, nor should we, reflect on our moral principles every single time we act. Rather, we select general principles of action that we then spontaneously apply to the situations we find ourselves in. These principles have been reflected upon and adopted on the basis of reasons for which we are answerable. But once these are settled, we do not need to repeat the reflective process every single time we act on them. The only requirement is that we act from principles we have reflected upon at some point. Um, in the sense, whilst the routine task of judgment is one of applying general principles to particular cases, the moral principles we have adopted simply play some kind of background role in everyday moral life. And so the primary burden of responsibility is located at the higher level of the choice of principles rather than at the level of their routine application or their routine use. Um, so the same is, is, is meant to be true of epistemic deliberation. Uh, so Kant's account of the role of epistemic principles does not imply that conscious reflection upon them is necessary for the legitimate acquisition of every single belief. Kant says, uh, for common cognition, it is not necessary that we be conscious of these rules and reflect on them. If we were to do that, we would lose very much. End of quote. So although actual awareness <coughs> of epistemic rules is not necessary for every single belief acquisition, it does not entail that we are not responsible for every belief that is thereby acquired. Just as in moral deliberation, the only requirement is that we act from the principles we have reflected upon. Um, there is one exception, and this is uh, the case of complex or uncertain beliefs, uh, what Kant sometimes calls 
learned cognition. Quote, if our understanding wants to have ascended to learned cognition, then it must be conscious of its rules and use them in accordance with reflection, because here common practice is not enough for it. Um, so typically scientific, um, scientific inquiry um, or even um, kind of slightly complex um, everyday um, belief acquisition um, is a, are, counts as cases where we do have to reflect. Um, it, it is necessary um, to actually reflect uh, upon our beliefs by investigating their grounds. Um, and the civic in investigation uh, ought to happen in accordance with the epistemic principles we have adopted. Um, if we choose not to reflect in those cases, um, we should, of course, be blamed for it. Um, actually, how am I doing with time? Sorry. It's still 15 minutes. Okay. Right. Thank you. Um, so one question that um, I was actually going to cut, but since I have a bit of time, I, I, I'll get to it quickly. Um, so one thing that I, I was wondering is in this case, so say, you know, it's a case of learned cognition, it's a complicated epistemic case, I'm not really sure what to believe, I, I go for disbelief, I'm not sure, I look at my grounds, um, oh, let's say, rather, I don't look at my grounds and I just go for the belief. Um, I should be blamed, well, is this blame, epistemic blame or moral blame? I mean, of course, a kind of um, obvious question to ask. Um, so, well, there are a number of ways of, of, of um, looking at it. So, um, one way would be to think about it in light of Kant's claim about the primacy of practical reason. Um, so, practical reason comes first. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm looking if I have a quote. No, I don't actually have a quote. Um, but um, he... Kant claims it at various points, um, most famously in the second critique. Um, so if, if there is some sort of primacy of practical reason, um, one may be tempted to think that his position goes along um, Cliffordian lines, namely, breaking an epistemic norm is really a moral violation. Um, it's not merely an epistemic violation. Um, why? Well, because, because of the primacy of practical reason, um, we have to look at epistemic normativity as some kind of subcategory of, or as being grounded on, moral normativity. Um, but this is not, I don't think it fits um, with the picture I'm trying to sketch here. Um, of course it's true that epistemic and moral normativity are both practically normative in, a Kantian, in the Kantian sense of the term. Um, what does it mean? Well, because they have to do with our capacity for self-determination, for autonomy, um, the notion I, I, I began with. Um, so if this is true, then it seems that um, there's a prior or primal prag uh, pragmatic, uh, practical, sorry, normativity that grounds uh, epistemic normativity. Um, but I don't think this is quite right. Um, because, um, well, on my picture, what you have is, is this notion of, of reason, the authority of reason, grounding both moral and epistemic norms equally. So um, recall the table I tried to draw where what we have is everything stemming from um, the same um, power, um, normative power. 
Um, and so this would entail that um, both epistemic and normal moral norms are first and foremost rational norms. Um, it is then the application of reason's authority to particular domains, whether we are deliberating about what to believe or what to do, that gives rise to moral or epistemic norm, norms. Um, but what I take to be Kant's point is that whatever the domain, the source of normativity is the same, namely the authority of reason. Anyway, this is this is quite um, this is um, quite quick and um, is is just you know what seems to be entailed by by my count. Um, but I mean, I'd be curious to know what you think about it. Um, okay, so before I conclude, I would like to discuss briefly a final example. Um, what I've argued so far is that the application of the universalizability test um, to the epistemic realm is not only possible, it produces results that are compatible with Kant's familiar epistemic positions. Uh, that's what I've tried to show in the case of evidentialism. Um, but now I want to turn to the case of testimony. Um, and what I hope to show is that uh, the test also produces um, unexpected results, and that these results um, have the potential to form the basis of, a fresh, of fresh Kantian answers to more contemporary um, questions. So now briefly, testimony. So a number of commentators have argued that Kant belongs to uh, an individualist tradition, according to which testimony has no epistemic importance. Um, the idea is that if, if testimony is epistemically unreliable, it should follow that either we have a duty not to rely on it, or we can rely on it, uh, but only if it plays some kind of corroborative role. Um, either way, on this view, testimony isn't and should not be a fundamental source of knowledge. Um, so by contrast with this, this interpretation, um, I would like to suggest that Kant's epistemic universalizability test commits him to the opposite um, position. Um, and again, so this will be uh, quite brief, but what I, what I hope to show is how the test can generate interesting um, results. Um, so first, um, if I were to reject testimony as a source of information, um, I would be unable to perform the duty to think myself in the place of others. Um, what I have called at the beginning of the paper the duty of extended thought. Uh, why? Well, because the duty of extended thought uh, requires that one, quote, reflects on his judgment from a universal standpoint, which he can only determine by putting himself into the standpoint of others, end of quote. Um, yet the problem is that I cannot access the standpoint of others without relying on their testimony. Um, so on this basis, testimony is a pragmatically necessary means to realize one of my core epistemic duties. So I have an indirect duty um, to believe testimony. That's the first step. Second step, um, the maxim not to believe in testimony can be thought of on the model of the maxim not to keep um, <coughs> promises. Why? Because when universalized, it entails the disappearance of the maxim of promise making, what um, I have called the contradiction in conception. Similarly, the universalization of the maxim not to believe in testimony would entail the disappearance of the practice of testimony. Because as in the case of promise making, 
if um, if I universalize the maxim uh, not to believe in testimony, um, everyone would eventually stop uh, giving testimonies. It would become some kind of pointless exercise. No one would believe it. Um, therefore, we have a negative duty to refrain from not believing in testimony. And third and final step, um, the maxim not to believe in testimony can be thought of on the model of the maxim of refusing to help others in need. Why? Well, because if it were universalized, it would generate a contradiction in the will. Um, why? Well, because it goes along the same lines as, um, as, as the maxim to refuse to help others. Um, I am a dependent and vulnerable being. Um, I know that I will probably need to rely on others' help. Um, or at least I know that it's not impossible that I may need to rely on others' help at some point. And so my lack of self-sufficiency leads me to will that others help me if and when I need it. Therefore, I can't possibly will that the maxim refuse to assist others in need be universalized without being inconsistent. So now, um, the universalization of the maxim do not believe testimony leads to the same result. I am epistemically dependent. Not only do I need epistemic cooperation, I naturally desire to communicate my thoughts. Uh, here's a passage from the lectures on logic. There lies, in I, there lies in our nature a certain inclination to communicate our opinion to others. This inclination does not arise from vanity at all, but rather from human reason's particular and excellent disposition to communicate." End of quote. Um, yet, universalizing the maxim against testimony would generate a world in which others would stop believing my testimony, which I can't possibly will, since I desire to communicate my thoughts. Um, moreover, I can't will that others believe my testimony and at the same time that I ought not to believe theirs without being inconsistent. Therefore, since the maxim do not believe testimony fails the contradiction in the will test, I have the duty to positively believe testimony. And of course, Kant adds the usual um, defeating conditions so that in certain cases, you know, if the person has lied before, etc., um, you know, this duty doesn't apply. Um, but everything else being equal, we do have a positive duty to believe testimony. So as a result, um, on this picture, Kant's argument for the epistemic role of testimony is not merely that it is ineliminable given the kind of cognitive creatures we are. Rather, um, if we apply the test um, as I've defended it today, it seems to give you a threefold argument. First, we need testimony. Second, we ought to refrain from not believing in it. And third, we ought to believe it. Okay, so to conclude briefly, um, so what I've done today is to explore the possibility of a Kantian account of the ethics of belief by deploying the tools provided by Kant's ethics. So as you've seen, a lot of it is programmatic, a lot of it was very brief and quite um, rough in its formulation. Um, what, but what I hope to have shown is that it has um, the legs, so to speak, to uh, give us eventually an account um, that makes sense, but also has the potential to contribute to um, some of the contemporary debates on the topic. Thank you.